Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. We are 200 days in with the Trump administration. Donald himself took to, well, he as he is known to do, went on uh, Twitter and had some of the following to share. Uh, the Trump base, this is from earlier today, in fact, it's from this morning, the Trump base is far bigger and stronger than ever before, despite some phony fake news polling. Look at rallies in Pennsylvania, Iowa, Ohio, and West Virginia. The fact is, the fake news Russian collusion story, record stock market, uh, border security, military strength, jobs, Supreme Court pick, economic enthusiasm, deregulation, and so much more have driven the Trump base even closer together. We will never, oh, or will never change. Uh, and then he goes on, writes that hard, hard to believe, uh, hard to believe that with the 24-7 fake news on CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, New York Times, and Washington Post, the Trump base is getting stronger. And uh, then he goes on and gets into a bit of a feud with Richard Blumenthal, the uh, senator from Connecticut. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment here. So here's what's going on. Everyone's taking a little bit of a step back to think about what's been happening with this Trump administration so far, because Trump is on vacation for a little while now. Doesn't mean he's not on the Twitter, of course, but he's on vacation. And you have Congress also on vacation. So they, they may be facing their angry constituents back home in some town halls. I'm sure that will be a combination of legitimately outraged and, and annoyed constituents and, of course, the uh, AstroTurf community organizer activists who show up at these town halls and try to, for, of course, Republicans, try to make things look worse than they are and, and create a viral moment on on video. They'll even sometimes have their, their kids ask the questions that are meant to trip up the congressman. I'm just like, who, who does that? Anyway, uh, so we, we can take a moment now, 200 days in, with the Congress and the president on break. It's August. So, by the way, you'll notice this, too. A lot of journalists will be taking off, particularly the last two weeks of August. And so things will slow down a bit, right? The news cycle will seem less urgent, and there'll be more uh, puff pieces out there. There'll be more stuff. You're like, what is this? What am I even reading? Things that come off the shelf, re-ups from previous pieces, because news is, as I always say to you, a narrative. It's a construct. And that's why the whole the whole idea of an entirely unbiased news organization or a news organization that has no uh, political proclivities one way or the other is just nonsensical. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense when you look at how choices are being made all the time. Anyway, so journalists will be 
they'll be out. August, things will slow down a bit. It'll be fun for us because we'll get a chance to just dive into subject matter that I think will be interesting to talk about here. And maybe we'll do some more history deep dives. And uh, I know some of you liked and and enjoyed uh, Can A. Uh, that was something that you, you had fun um, uh, listening to. So... The Battle of Cannae, uh, Hannibal squaring off against a couple of Roman consuls, not quite up to the task. So I'm hoping to do more of that, and we'll have more time for it later on in the month. But 200 days in, you got the Trump administration right now looking back at what's happened and, of course, trying to create the uh, trying to create the sense going into the fall that things are pretty good. And, and here's what I would say. You know, I had a conversation earlier today with a friend of mine, a, another another conservative uh, in media, and, and he takes the position. He, he's I, not a never-Trumper, but he's a not-so-into-Trumper, not right? He, he's kind of—he's willing to go along a little bit, although I think he actually, now that I, now that I recall, I think he voted for Hillary, which I just, just don't understand. Oh, I understand. It's amazing. You should always vote for Hillary. Uh, but I don't understand how anybody would would be able to do that and be a conservative. But look, it was a crazy time. You know, 2016 was a crazy was a crazy year. Everybody, you know, things happened. Things were done. Uh, but we, we were talking, and, and he was focusing in on, you know, Buck. Don't you feel like this this administration? There's all there's the nepotism with the kids in the White House, and I'm like, yeah, I get it. I, I'm not. I I am not a fan of that. Uh, you know, the tone of the White House and all the shakeups and everything. I said, look, OK, but you got to understand there's there's two other com- there's two other very important. If you're going to do the whole step back and and look at uh, what's what matters here, right? What matters to you? What matters to me? Do I care other than for the purposes of comedy and having some fun here in the Freedom Hut? Do I care that the mooch, you know, showed up in D.C. was like, hey, everybody, hey, I'm the mooch. And then everyone's like, the mooch, you got to go. And he's like, oh, the mooch has got to go. Uh, but do, do I care that that no, doesn't affect me, doesn't affect you, that the media hates Trump so much and that they think that he's undermining them and is rude to them and dismissive and throws around the fake news label? Does that affect you? I mean, no, it really doesn't. If you judge this administration, I mean, if you judge this president and, and his White House on what has been implemented, forget about the the style, I mean the substance on what has happened starting in January, and even some of my, my, my never-Trumper peeps out there, I think, are willing to concede this to one degree or another. Not, not necessarily entirely, but to one degree or another. Remember, we're 200 days in. So and and Trump's tweeting out a, t- tweeting up a storm about this, and people are wondering, you know, what what can we make of it all? Um, if you look at it on the substance and not the style, there's been a, and Trump gave some of it in his in his Twitter tirade. Um, there's been a lot of good stuff. There have been a whole bunch of things, uh, a whole bunch of things have have happened under this presidency that I think even conservatives who were really skeptical of the president have to stand up and say, okay, that was good. First one that comes to mind, because I don't know, I've yet to hear a single conservative who disagrees, Neil Gorsuch in the Supreme Court. And that's a big win. Whoever Hillary was going to put on there, by the way, was going to make uh, Merrick Garland look like a, a cross between, you know, Antonin Scalia and 
you know, Milton Friedman or something. I mean, it was it was going to be there was no way that whoever Hillary ended up it wasn't going to be Merrick Garland. By the way, that was the offering that the Democrats made uh, when they didn't have control of the Senate and they weren't sure which way things were going to go. It, I don't think they were going to put him up. And even if they did, he would have probably been a, a reliable Democrat vote on the Supreme Court anyway. Well, I know we're not supposed to say that, right? The Supreme Court's not partisan, please. We're we're at the big boys and big girls table here. We can say these things to each other. Supreme Court is a political instrument largely masquerading now, unfortunately, as a as an impartial judicial branch. I know, right? Makes me sad too, but it's true. Gorsuch is through. Okay, that that's big. The regulatory agencies and the passage of Keystone XL and and other pipelines uh, those are all wins for business, wins for the American people, and just wins for sanity and reason. And uh, th- that's all very good stuff. The administration has been excellent on it. And, you know, I think you, you got some people that in the administration that don't get a lot of, of press or attention, but you got Zinke, Secretary of the Interior, doing a great job. Uh, you know, Secretary Zinke's doing a great job. A lot of people that are really uh, conducting themselves very honorably as public servants and doing a lot of good for the country. Uh, the economy is, by all the metrics that we can use at least, incredibly strong right now, right? I mean, the economy, you got the stock market at all-time high, Dow at all-time high, 4.1% unemployment, good jobs numbers recently, and there's a, there's optimism. People think things will get better, and optimism matters. It matters for hiring. It matters for expansion, for entrepreneurs, for investment. These are all largely confidence measures. I mean, you talk to salty old old dogs on Wall Street about what what the governing factors are in the markets, which of course have tremendous impact on uh, from Wall Street to Main Street. The the jump is smaller and smaller all the time. Uh, you know, our 401k's are all tied up in the performance of uh, Wall Street, our pension plans are tied up in Wall Street performance, our home values. I mean, you know, you just go, hey, the food you're buying, I mean, everything, right? So you're not, you can't live a life that's separate from the market in this country. Uh, but by by every objective measure we can see so far, uh, the Trump administration has been positive. And, and that's really meaningful. And I think it's because people feel like things get better. And back to the salty old dogs on Wall Street, it's it's just they say, I mean, this is a very cynical way of viewing it, but people make decisions based on fear and greed when it comes to the markets. You know, they, they'll get into it and they'll risk money when they think they're going to make money. And when they get scared, they pull their money. Well, that's perception. I mean, yeah, there are numbers attached to it, but a lot of this is perception driven, just like a lot of politics is perception driven. That's why polling is always such a nasty fight between different people. So, and, and and that's another place I should note where there are there's this constant back and forth. Well, yeah, what's Trump's approval rating? Is he is he getting the the numbers that other presidents had in the past? But once again, you look at what's been done by the White House, and I think you've got to say so far it's it's been pretty. Even if you don't like the drain the swamp. MAGA, Trump wears the hats and, you know, does things his way and smacks around the media. And I know a lot of you are like, I love that stuff. And, you know, I I like a lot of it, too. But even if you don't like any of that, you look at the record so far and it is pretty positive. But that then brings me to, well, where's the where's the sour part of this story? Well, what's going to give you and me a little bit of a of a sadness here? And I, I. Got to say that Congress has been, Republican-led Congress has been very disappointing. Now, 
can we say it's surprising that they, in at least in some cases, turned out to just be out-and-out liars? No. Politicians lie. Is it disappointing that we don't have a health care bill? Is it disappointing that we don't yet have an immigration bill? You know, I, I give the I give the Trump team credit for shifting the conversation about immigration to a skill-based, point-based system instead of a chain migration dominant system. But they still have to pass legislation. And we're not there yet. Now, they, they still need to actually get this stuff over the goal line. And that's going to require a congressional action here. And what we're going to see is that the Republican Party has a lot of fakers, a lot of a lot of phonies bouncing around the Republican Party. And it depends on the issue. Yeah, you know, I, I got to say, you know, Paul Ryan, really good on talking about long term budget projections and tackling the debt and deficit. And he's a wonk and a budget nerd and, you know, P90X and doing the bicep curls and all that stuff. The moment that you get him on immigration, though, you're like, whoa, who let, like, the Cato Institute in here? This is crazy. This guy's practically open borders. I mean, I like Cato, but, you know, some of their guys that go out there are just like, yeah, the more the more, the merrier. I mean, just taking everybody from all over the world, nothing bad can ever happen. I'm like, well, you know, that's cause and effect just indicates that you're going to create some problems if you have a completely unrestricted immigration system. Oh, no, no, no. Some of those libertarians, man, they're just like it'll it'll improve or it'll increase economic uh, economic output. I'm like, well, yes, and and if you put a lot of of people into one room, you will increase the matter and density in the room, but that does not necessarily serve all the purposes you want at the time, right? I mean, that, that's just to say there's more people doing stuff doesn't necessarily mean that it's good, especially if they're a net drain on the economy when you add in benefits and other things. But but I digress. We'll get into the immigration discussion a bit later in the show. I've got a few things I want to talk to you about uh, MS-13, a little bit of a backgrounder on that. We'll get into some of the background of MS-13, uh, which I find very interesting. And I also want to do some discussions here on the show probably later on, maybe later this month, actually, we talk so much about the opioid epidemic and heroin. I want to talk about the cartels and the cartels switching over from, at some level, from marijuana trafficking. They still do that, of course, but heroin has become a much larger part of their drug portfolio, so to speak. So we'll get into that. Also, uh, diversity has just gone gone completely mad at some of these campuses, where now you have all these demands being made. Oh, and this memo that has just been rocking the Silicon Valley world, a memo of, of some engineer from within Google, which I know some people work for Google, and Google is... It is very leftist in its in its uh, tendencies, in its governing, well, not governing, but in its internal corporate philosophies and ideologies. Google, man, is is really, you do not want to be walking around there like, um, is, is transgender rights really the new civil rights movement? They'd be like, get out of here. They do, they do not want to hear that. But somebody at Google question their diversity policies in a 10-page memo based on the differences between men and women, male-female, gender-binary discussion here. And, man, I mean, the the patriarchy is, for some at least, patriarchy in full effect here. I mean, this guy was mansplaining and manspreading in this 10 pages. He spread out his analysis over 10 pages. Uh, so I'll get into that because I think that is fascinating but the response to it, of course, is the the, the progressive media organizations or the progressive uh, internet companies, Google, Facebook. I mean, they're all just circling the wagons. This is horrible. It's a anti-diversity screed, and 
just even the fact that that they think of of uh, the the fact that women are covered in diversity hiring at any company whatsoever is an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? So we'll talk about the the arguments he makes, the details uh, therein. And uh, we've got updates on the uh, leak investigation. Some interesting stuff's come up about Loretta Lynch's email use when she was attorney general. And just all in all, my friends, very, very full show. A lot. The the glass is more than half full on this show. This is like a full full to the brim. You might want to take a sip so that you can add some uh, almond milk or perhaps stevia if you like the more uh, trendy plant-based sweeteners. Uh, I would expect there'll be a lot of scary headlines about North Korea in the weeks ahead. Not that North Korea isn't scary. It's terrifying. And not that that problem isn't getting worse. It is getting markedly worse. But I wonder how much news value is there in the continued uh, repetition of Kim Jong-un's state news agency saying that, you know, they will respond with the force of a thousand angry you know, sons or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll nuke us and they'll nuke everybody. And uh, this is, this is something we're all aware of at this point. I, I do think we are in the, in the beginning phases of the realization that we are heading for a showdown with North Korea over its nuclear program. This, this is not going to end with um, everything looking all great. Uh, that much that I think is a safe prediction beyond that who knows but yeah I see a lot a lot of North Korea stuff right now maybe we'll talk about it tomorrow just to see if there's any new policy or or new uh, thinking on the issue but for now I just think that you know you know North Korea is trying to get nukes trying to get ICBMs to put on the nukes I'm sorry to put on the ICBM trying to get nukes put on the ICBMs you know what I'm saying Um, and that's continuing on Terry in Ohio Uh, what's going on Terry Yes. Well, good afternoon. Good I was afternoon. talking to, to, to your call screener, and long story real short, if President Trump wants to get his agenda uh, past Congress, literally, I think he's going to go on national TV each time there's a major piece of legislation, call the American people to arms, tell them to call a congressman. Uh, that might get the job done. Put him on notice. Yeah, he might be able to mobilize people through his own, well, look, through his Twitter account and his pronouncements to the to the public, because he does have... Uh, you know, he, he does have a, a direct connection into the public with because, you know, once he tweets, it's not just, you don't have to be on Twitter. Then all the news organizations cover it. Right. So if he says call your congressman or if he says mo- mobilize, uh, well, you know, just like Arnold's army, the, uh, the golfer, if you get people uh, their attention on national TV, I guess it almost puts it's almost a scare threat sort of thing. And it's not going to happen unless you start calling. So yeah. that's we'll if you'll do it, great. I will see, Terry. Thanks, man. Shields high. Yeah, it's, I was going to say, if, if Trump puts out the call, like the bat signal, or, or for those of you who are from my generation, Thundercats unite. You know, Republicans call your congressman. Remember that show, Thundercats? Good times. Politicizing the Department of Justice for personal ends, I think, is a disservice to the law. And it's also potentially a violation of the spirit of the First Amendment. Remember, what we know about the Trump administration so far has been the result of very good reporting. I believe when the history of this era is written, the heroes will be the free press and the independent judiciary who have upheld the rule of law against threats by the Trump administration. There you have uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. And uh, Trump really does not like this guy from what we can see on his Twitter account. He writes, um, I think 
Senator Blumenthal should take a nice long vacation in Vietnam where he lied about his service so he can at least say he was there. As a total aside, by the way, I've actually been to Vietnam. It is a lovely country. I really like it. Um, I mean, I went a few years ago, uh, but I'm a big fan of Vietnamese food, uh, but I digress. That's a big digression, I know. Vietnam's pretty cool, though. Uh, Anyway, but they're obviously talking about service in Vietnam here, and the problem that Richard Blumenthal had with the truth when it came to that issue, let's just do a little refresher course on that, shall we? We have learned something very important since the days that I served in Vietnam, and you exemplify it. Serving in the United States military gave me a perspective as well, even in the reserves, although I did not serve in Vietnam. So he seemed confused about that whole serving in Vietnam, not having served in Vietnam. I can tell you from spending a little time in a couple of war zones myself, uh, serving the country in the capacity that I could, uh, not something you forget. You know, I, I have no illusions, right? I, I've I've never served, I've never served in in a Vietnamese uh, or in a Vietnam, in a war zone uh, capacity. So, I I don't think that's a mistake that one would make. Obviously, the guy was trying to trump up his record, and he was lying about things. Uh, and but Trump really does not seem to like this guy. You'll notice that he'll get a lot of play on the media, and he's just out there. You know, he'll be on a bunch of shows. I'm sure tonight, if he hasn't already. Uh, but Blumenthal is making these statements about the press and how the press is and all this great stuff. And what exactly has the press done? That What have they told us about this administration that we really needed to know? I, I think it's fair to ask the question and really think about this. So what, what do we need to know? We needed to know that Michael Flynn didn't tell the truth to Vice President Pence about a conversation he had that he was allowed to have where nothing bad happened. Okay, uh, we need. W- w- what is it that we found out uh, about this administration that we really, we really should be thankful to the press for? And uh, I, I don't see. You know, they haven't uncovered any. Isn't it amazing? People want to pat the media on the back already. They haven't uncovered any wrongdoing. They have not established that there was anything criminal that happened, or even uh, anything that was unethical in a, in a way that. You know, we all would be upset with. I mean, you know, they they think everything Trump says and does is unethical. But you know, Blumenthal is just part of this Democrat apparatus that is pro press because the press is anti Trump, and everyone sees this. And this is why, well, one, we know that we don't need a lecture from the press on how they're unbiased and how you know we can trust them to speak the truth and everything. Uh, but also, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. We should stop listening to this analysis that the talking heads do and the Democrats do uh, from the Senate and the House that they'll put on these different cable channels where they say, oh, you know, well, Trump shouldn't do this or he shouldn't do that. And he's such a bad guy for. And it's like, well, those things haven't even happened yet. He hasn't done them. He hasn't prosecuted any journalists. In fact, you had uh, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein going on the Sunday shows to say the following. You know, we're after the leakers, not the journalists. We're after people who are committing crimes. Uh, and so we're going to devote the resources we need to identify who is responsible for those leaks and who has violated the law and hold them accountable. That we don't prosecute journalists for doing their jobs. We look at the facts and circumstances of each case and we determine whether somebody's committed a crime and whether it's appropriate to hold them accountable for it. And you don't consider the publishing 
of classified information as a crime. Well, Chris, I don't think you can draw any you know, general line like that. It depends upon the facts and circumstances. You know, generally speaking, reporters who publish information are not committing a crime, but there might be a circumstance uh, where they do. Uh, you know, I haven't seen any of those to date, but I wouldn't rule it out uh, in, the, in the event that there were a case uh, where a reporter was purposely violating the law, then they might be a suspect as well. But that's not our goal here. Our goal is to prevent the leaks. Now, I, the, the goal is to prevent the leaks. Okay, fine. They're going to go after the government people. They always do that. I know I'm kind of a heretic on this, but why do we all have to pretend that journalists have a an in, inviolable or, or you know, an, an unending right? And there he did give a little wiggle room. You'll notice he's like, well, there could be a circumstance to just publish anything, no matter how damaging it is to the United States. And they know. I mean, these journalists know when, when they're publishing some of this stuff that it's going to harm the country. But if it harms Trump, they'll do it anyway. Why are they... Why do they get a special exemption from the law? The law says that you know you are not to transmit information that is you know useful to an enemy that would be harmful to the national defense. And now I think that should be a very high bar. I and I you know I think it should be a very high bar. By the way, across the board, I think that some of the stuff, some of the uh, you know low level, um, you know Mickey Mouse kind of prosecutions that they've brought in the past for leaks. I'm like, come on. Uh, but I, I I disagree with this notion that, and of course, because we all rely on journalists to explain, not all of us, but people rely on journalists to give them their sense of, you know, what is, what journalists' job should be, right? The journalists are the ones who are explaining it. Uh, it's, at a minimum, let's just say this, it is really unethical to do what the Post and the Times have done in countless cases to publish information that they they know, or they have, you know, they, they believe to be, at a minimum, classified and damaging to national security um there there it's unethical I, I don't know why we give this uh you know get out of jail free car that's quite a way to put it it's really accurate actually i don't know why we say oh you know journalists are just doing their, they're just doing their jobs as i've said to you okay so if a journalist gets inside information about a company and decides to buy some stock is he just just doing his job oh no that's not okay so insider trading is not okay, but classified revelations that harm the United States national security, that's that's fine. I just, I'm sorry, if you look at this from the perspective of what is what is right, what is moral, what a, uh, a dutiful and responsible citizen of this country would and would not do, what some of these journalists do is, is, is completely uh, beyond the pale. It really is. And, and I, I, don't, I do not agree with these people. There are a few places where a lot of journalists and I disagree. I don't think it's ethical uh, to have somebody else's name on a book that you haven't written. Um, and have you, I'm sorry, I don't think it's ethical to have your name on a book that you didn't write a word of and not at least have somebody else as like a co-author. I don't think that's ethical. The publishing industry, of course, disagrees because now publishing a lot of books is mostly just a branding exercise, right? People have ghostwriters everywhere and who knows. But, you know, I disagree with those who say, oh, that's the way the business works. Okay, but you're, you're kind of lying. I mean, you know, if, if you don't have someone else's name on there at all and you're saying, I wrote this book and you didn't write the book, you didn't write the book. That's a lie, right? This is pretty basic stuff, actually. So, and I know people get very mad at me when I say this, including friends of mine in conservative media. I disagree with this notion. By the way, in the United Kingdom, they had the Official Secrets Act. You know, the U.K. is not living in, like, the long, dark night of tyranny. But, you know, if you got wind as a journalist of 
a very, very sensitive government program that the public had no need to know about, but you just wanted to blow that program for the fun of it. If you do that in the U.K., they might actually hold you responsible. They can legally. And what I think is interesting in this country is that legally they can as well. They just choose not to. Hmm. Interesting. So the Department of Justice says that the law is not, you know, this, uh, and I, I understand I'm different on this. And a lot of, I'm different than a lot of conservatives on this. And the people, you know, they're all right now, every journalist I know will be yelling at me pretty much. Oh, how could you? But the same Jeff Sessions and, you know, Rod Rosenstein over at the uh, attorney general's office and uh, at the Department of Justice who are saying on immigration, the law is the law is the law. And I agree with them on that. When it comes to the dissemination of information that's harmful to national defense, and again, I think it should be a very high bar, but I think the Times and the Post have cleared that bar many times. Uh, They just somehow say that, well, the law isn't really the law. They do not have any statutory exemption from prosecution. It does not exist. And I just think it's fascinating that you have... You know, you got someone like Blumenthal saying the press is doing this great job. Meanwhile, Blumenthal, if one of those leakers is caught, will probably say, oh, yeah, the leaker. Leaker's terrible. The leaker's a source of the information. If it's shining light on our democracy and doing this great thing for the New York Times to publish it, how is the leaker a bad guy? You know, people want to have their cake and eat it, too, with this. Really think this through. Forget about what journalists say. A lot of journalists are glorified gossip columnists. They just want all their little perks and their little power, and they like to be able to run stories based on secret information that they get from the government without consequence. And maybe even, you know, we can't change the laws, and I get it, because then it would—or not even change the law. We can't enforce the law on this. That's actually what it would be, enforce the law on this, because then it would be, you know, such a chilling effect in the First Amendment. But— Well, we're willing to accept now that the government, because they did this under Obama, will pull journalists' information to get at their sources. So that's a a massive chilling effect. But that will will sort of say, at least under Obama, they'd say it's okay. When Trump does it, by the way, you will notice it'll be a—I don't know what the most alarms is for a fire, a five-alarm fire. I think that's right. I don't know. i got to ask one of my firefighter friends. But they're going to act like it is, you know, the nuclear apocalypse uh, for the First Amendment. It is just going to be— you know, the, the end of days for free speech, the moment that Donald Trump's uh, Department of Justice starts pulling journalist information and get its sources. But I'm just offering to you that we should look at the issue with moral clarity. Maybe the legalities of this are too intricate, but you know, like I said, you'll notice uh, Blumenthal says the press has done great stuff, including with the leaks about Trump. But and not that Blumenthal is some paragon of virtue or anything like that, but Here's a guy who's going to say that. He's a U.S. senator. But if they find one of these leakers, oh, yeah, leaker. Leaker should go to prison. So New York Times publishing the information so that it actually is out there and can damage national security. They're like the guardians of democracy. But the person who gives them the information that we're supposed to know so that the New York Times can be guardians of democracy is the bad guy. This is just an issue of logistics and convenience. You know, we got to punish somebody. So punish the guy from the government side of it. There's there's not an ethical boundary that's really being just like, oh, well, it's because the government is, uh, you know, you have responsibility to the government. Well, you have your first responsibility actually to the American people. And you can't say that one is good and the other is bad on a moral level. On a legal level, notice how they're, they won't change the law. They won't give journalists a separate statute because that would create some interesting 
legal issues of its own. So they just have this gray zone they like to operate in. You know, I know I'm different than other folks on this one, but think about what I'm saying. Think, try, try to just for a moment see it the way I'm seeing it. And when journalists talk about this issue and even politicians, you'd be like, wait a second. That just doesn't make, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, that's not, uh, that, that doesn't follow. There is not a, a logic to this. It's just what is the way we've done it is the way we should do it. Okay, I know we're talking leaks, and I went down. A, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole there. But uh, by the way, you get uh, Jason Chaffetz running around doing a lot of punditry, right? He's no longer in Congress. He talked about Rosenstein, um, but he said this about Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General. It's kind of an interesting take on it. He comes with absolutely zero credibility on this. Uh, remember, last year when we had Director Comey come before the Oversight Committee, I was the chairman. I asked him if he looked at Hillary Clinton, whether or not she told the truth under oath. He said he needed a request from Congress, so myself right. and Bob Goodlatte, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, sent that request to the Department of Justice. It's never been answered. So if they want to start, let's start with Hillary Clinton and whether or not she lied under, uh, under oath. And let's also go back to the State Department, who had an open investigation. They reopened it July 7th of 2016. They've never closed it. Nearly 300 people who are dealing in classified information in a non-secure setting. Why didn't they ever close that investigation? They need to answer those questions. So start with that. They okay. come with zero credibility on this issue. Well, I, I, I guess to say that Rosenstein has zero credibility because he hasn't uh, dealt with those other issues... It seems like it could be a problem down the line because if Rosenstein, if the uh, council doesn't bring any charges and Rosenstein drops all this, I'm sure we'll be hearing that Rosenstein is, or you know, not that he's the one leading that investigation, the Russia collusion, but I'm sure we'll be hearing about how great Rosenstein is there. There, But I think for now, there's a sense that they, there's a, uh, criti a lot of criticism of, of the DOJ and it's uh, functioning in the past as a political tool under the Democrats that now somehow is still weaponized against Republicans. Isn't it amazing? Democrats are in charge and Democrats don't get in trouble with anything from the DOJ. Republicans are in charge and somehow Republicans do get in trouble from, from the DOJ. That's just the way it is. Um, although, of course, on the left, people believe that this is all all this talk of the deep state as it is often termed uh, all this talk of the deep state is a whole bunch of uh, conspiracy stuff, right? That's what they say. Um, that's what is being said constantly over at MSNBC, including by Joy Reid. The other issue that, you know, the Breitbart world has been using to try to get Trump's numbers back up is this sort of deep state paranoia, the idea that there's a sort of slow motion coup taking place in the West Wing, that people like General Kelly and McMaster are undermining Trump and trying to take over and push out the Breitbart uh, sort of contingent out of the White House. Does that work in terms of keeping Donald Trump's base in place and keeping them paranoid enough to stick with him? Or at some point, will that even start to wear thin? Oh, I think for a while it'll keep them at bay because a lot of folks okay, who go yeah, to Breitbart. So, but that that's it's all it's all just you know the DOJ and the intel agencies and the federal government opposing Trump and the deep state. That's all a big lie, they say, right? So it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. So she's saying that, and that's a, a common refrain you'll hear over at MSNBC. Meanwhile, here's a piece from today from the Hill: Federal employees step up defiance of Trump. Government employees are growing increasingly willing to criticize or defy the White House and President Trump's top appointees. 
A handful of current and former career staffers in the Interior Department and Environmental Protection Agency have openly shredded their superiors within the last several weeks, continuing a trend that has developed throughout the government over the course of Trump's tenure in the Oval Office. I mean, I could go on. It just goes into more details about this. So what are we to call it when there are people that are supposed to be civil servants who are non-political, who refuse, who want to keep getting a check in the executive branch of the federal government where they work for the White House? They work for Donald Trump. They work for the president. That's what the executive branch is. He's the top of the executive branch. They want to keep getting the check, but they don't want to do what they are told to do. They don't want to implement orders and policy from the president, from the commander in chief. They, they would like to find some way around all this. If we don't call them deep, deep state, what, what should we call them? What is that? What is that thing? What is it when people are in the government and refuse to act as though they obey government mandates <laughs> because they don't like Donald Trump? I saw some over the weekend, some of this uh, chatter including a piece, I believe, in the New York Times about how there is a, a stealth Pence for President effort underway. This is one of these stories that, from the perspective of the anti-Trump media, it just it's great for them, right? Because it's interesting. I mean, I read it. They don't have to be right, and no one will know for a long time if they are right, but it immediately creates doubts about whether Trump would even seek a second term, if you believe the story, of course, which I don't, but it creates doubts about whether Trump even wants a second term. It also uh, magnifies the perception that Donald Trump is worried about what's going to happen as a result of this Mueller special counsel investigation. I should note that the uh, most read piece I see in the Washington Post right now is that as Mueller closes in, Trump must prepare his base for the worst. So this is now, it's it's August. The media is going to get creative. They're going to find ways, of course, to make the Trump administration look bad or to create greater uncertainty, to fan the flames of discontent among different administration officials, whatever it is that they can do to just make life harder for this White House, they will do. Uh, and in this case, it's just creating creating this whole narrative, this whole storyline that Pence will be running in 2020, that Donald Trump won't even run again, and that they're already preparing and that there are donors lining up and all this stuff is happening. Trump's uh, senior spokesperson, I'm not even sure what her official title is, but Kellyanne Conway was on the Sunday shows shooting this down. And I want to make a remark about Vice President Pence. I've worked with him for 10 years as his pollster, as a senior advisor, and certainly work with him daily in the White House. It is absolutely true that the vice president is getting ready for 2020 for re-election as vice president. So no concern and he's, he's setting up a shadow campaign? And he's also getting ready for 2018. Zero concern. That is complete fiction. That is complete fabrication. Now, let's assume for a moment that Ms. Conway here is, is correct. And that it's a total fiction, total fabrication. Do we think that the, the press that ran with the story cares? Of course not. Do you think that the journalists at the, I think it was the Times, who ran that piece have a moment's hesitation about it now that there's been pushback and people are saying, oh, that's not accurate, that's not? No, because the purpose of these pieces, the reason for these stories to appear in the New York Times and these other places is not to inform the public. It is to feed anti-Trump 
prejudices and to create memes, thought patterns, perceptions, uh, news cycles that are damaging to Trump. And so as long as it serves that end, it doesn't matter. Accuracy to them does not matter. This is why when Trump calls them fake news and people say, oh, that's so unfair and, you know, he's being Trump again with his fake news stuff and he shouldn't say that. I know what he's talking about. Do you think there'll ever be any corroboration of this whole Pence 2020 story? Do you think we'll ever get to the bottom of it? I think it's unlikely because they'll drop it. They ran with it. They were able to use it for the time period they wanted to, and then they were able to go forward. Also, I mean, how much time have we spent talking about the possibility of Mueller, the special counsel who is uh, looking at all kinds of things, Trump, right now? How many times have we talked about the possibility of Trump firing him, despite the fact that everyone around Trump is saying that that's not going to happen? And look, I get it. This is Kellyanne Conway's spokesperson for the administration, and she has— she has been willing to defend some pretty fringe stuff at times from uh, from the president, particularly during the campaign. But on this issue of firing uh, Mueller, she seems pretty definitive about no way, no how, no chance. Does the president commit to not firing Robert Mueller? The president has not even discussed that. The, the president is not discussing firing Bob Mueller. But will he commit we not to firing? and cooperating with... He, he has not even discussed not fire. He's not discussed firing Bob Mueller. That's not and what in I'm fact, asking. And Ty Cobb... Well, well, hold on. I'm not the president's lawyer here, but I will tell you as his counselor, he is not discussing that. He, you have to listen to his special counsel, Ty Cobb, who works in the White House now and has said very clearly, George, this week, that we will continue to cooperate with Bob Mueller in his investigation. So you can believe you can believe that that's what's going on or you can believe what the media is saying here. But, you, you know, you add all these stories up. And I, like I said, you're going to see more of this, too. Right. The the news piece that's really a question disguised as a news item or, or an allegation disguised as a news item. We've seen in recent weeks. Uh, what was it? You know, is, is can Trump pardon himself? Trump's asking about whether he can pardon members of his own family. Trump's wondering if he can pardon himself. You know, that was 24 or 48 hours of media time spent on that one, right? And what are we to take away from that? Well, the president's really worried, right? They're coming for him. He, know, he knows they've got him. It's just a question of when. And whether it's the 2020 run by Pence or firing Mueller, these are all stories that are—they could be completely false. They could be totally wrong— and yet they keep coming out with them and out with them. And, uh, you know, who knows what their sourcing is on some of this. And there have been major retractions. I've talked to you about this in the past. But this is why when he says fake news, people cheer and they're happy. Not all of it's fake, obviously. If all of it were fake, it wouldn't be effective. And you, know, you need to have some credibility or else everything you do is worthless, right? I mean, unless you're living in a true totalitarian state where they— where the media is run by the state and they can force you to say whatever they want, the, the media has to be somewhat believable. It has to be mostly believable. It really has to be uh, you know, 90% believable. But that last 10% of stories that it runs with that are not thoroughly sourced or that are based on flimsy sources but that have a clear political motive, that's all that you need to see that this is a— this is a game for them, really. And and they're playing for keeps. I mean, they're not 
they're not messing around with this. So we will have to see if uh, Trump is able to get past this month without there being just an avalanche of of negative stories that aren't even really stories, right? This will just be, they'll do it as think pieces. They'll do it as news analysis about how terrible the administration is. I started off today talking to you about how we're 200 days in and judging the administration by how, what it has actually done, it's been pretty good. Congress has stunk up the joint, but you know, Trump has actually done a pretty good job. All things, I mean, it could be a lot. It could be better. Maybe a lot better. It could be better. I I wish that there wasn't all of the uh, back and forth in the White House that we've seen. Hey, the mooch! I just like saying that. I should stop. I know. You've got General Kelly now. Looks like he has set in place some sturdier mechanisms inside the White House, and there is a a calm, steady, and respected hand on the helm or on the wheel. So that will be useful to be sure. I mean, I think that will make things a bit better, but just be on, be on guard for it. Really. I'm giving you a, a a bit of a early heads up and a warning that I think you'll see a lot of what could be accurately described as fake news, which should be described as fake news in the weeks ahead, because things will slow down. You don't have Congress. You don't have the president uh, in the white house day in and day out. Access will be somewhat limited, and so this is the time to create some froth, some frenzy, some excitement among the anti-Trump uh, Russia collusion fantasists out there that it's all coming. It's all coming apart. It's all going to collapse. You just wait and see. And there are so many different ways you can do these stories. And I, I mean, in a sense, I, I almost am curious on a purely creative level how they come up with uh, different ways of suggesting that Trump is just days away from prosecution or someone in his inner circle is it's just a question of when, right? I'm curious to see how they do it. I know they will do it, but just keep an eye out on it, eye out for it, because you're going to see a lot of it. I'm telling you today, there's going to be, or in the next few weeks, lots of, you know, what would it be like if, you know, there'll be a piece in the Washington Post in, in prison, would a president have a special cell, you know, and they're bringing a bunch of experts? What would the president's cell be like when he's in prison? You know, oh, somebody else come in here and talk to us about what that's. Let's bring on a presidential, a noted presidential historian, probably from CNN. Uh, you know, what, what would it be like for a president to go to prison? Uh, and uh, I mean, we're not saying he's going to prison. That's what they'll tell you. We're just, you know, bringing on some experts to, to wonder about. What it would be like, where that, where, if that unfortunate calamity were to befall the American people. Uh, anyway, talk about a, a hit to the markets too. I mean, if, if these people got their wish, if the if the true anti-Trumpers, if the hashtag resistance got what it wanted here, which is a president who was uh, forced out of office either through resignation or impeachment and removal by the Senate, and then was prosecuted criminally, uh, think about what that would do to. I mean, I, I guess they would say, well, that's what's needed because he's the president and you can't break the law. Think of what that would do, though, to the stock market, to employment, to the, the perception of where the country is going. Uh, it would send us all to a very dark place. But that is a trade-off I, I am certain they're all willing to make right now. Uh, speaking of trade-offs and, uh, well, no, I can't really do a great—I'm going to have to reverse on that transition uh reverse on that tease i saw this and you may be wondering who is elizabeth carlisle 
And what does she have to do with one of the most, formerly most powerful figures in the United States government? Well, Elizabeth Carlyle is an alias for the former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, an alias that she used in emails about official business, reporting here on Fox, also on the Daily Caller and some other sites earlier today. Uh, And this is a result of Judicial Watch and the American Center for Law and Justice, the ACLJ. They decided to get their hands on some correspondence, right? These are these are official government records, and so they, they wanted to get it, and they did. And here's what we found out. Loretta Lynch used the alias Elizabeth Carlisle for official emails as attorney general, including those related to her infamous tarmac meeting last summer with former President Clinton. The emails were included in 413 pages of Justice Department documents provided to conservative watchdog groups Judicial Watch, And the ACLJ, top federal officials using email aliases is not illegal or new. Uh, Considering others in the former Obama administration also use them, arguing security concerns and spam to their official email addresses swamp their inboxes. Uh, I didn't know this. Eric Holder, who was obviously the predecessor of Loretta Lynch as attorney general, used the uh, used the. alias Lou Alcinder, which was what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the uh, NBA basketball superstar, uh, that was his name before he changed it. And then, of course, you had Lois Lerner, the IRS official. She used the alias Toby Miles, which I don't know what that is. Um, But anyway, why would somebody—let's just ask the question, right? Why would you do this, your government official? Why— in a, I understand they're saying it's not illegal. Okay, fine. But what's the purpose of it? And they say that it's because of spam to their inboxes. Sorry. I'm not buying that. So that let, let's get a bit let's get a bit beyond that fantasy as to why this is happening. And are we really supposed to think that, oh, Lois Lerner did this and uh, Eric Holder did this and Loretta Lynch did this, you know, just cause. The, the, those are some of the most uh, politically, uh, well, sensitive isn't really the right word, right? There's some of the people at the center of the political storm of the previous administration. I mean, obviously, with Loretta Lynch, you've got the person who met with Bill Clinton on the tarmac days before the announcement about Hillary. And said that, you know, she regretted the decision, but never recused herself, mind you. See, that's how the Democrats play the game. I've been telling you this. That's how the Democrats that's how they get down. They they want to win. They, they'll they'll lie, cheat, and steal. They want to win. Republicans are, you know, we're the Boy Scouts. We're going to do the right thing. Okay, but you can do the right thing and you can lose the game. And if you lose the game, I'm not sure that doing the right thing is always the right move. I am just saying. I know that the ends don't justify the means, but maybe I'm saying sometimes they do. Uh, Lynch, and I, I know that's a moral fallacy, and people are going to say, you talk about ethics, and then you say the ends justify the I know, I know. Um, I'm just having fun here. Uh, but, yeah, Lynch used lose this name, um, Elizabeth Carlisle, for official documents. I mean, the much, more, the much more likely explanation for why she would do this is that by using an alias in your official work correspondence, it is much more likely, it is, it is certainly possible— that you will 
um, avoid FOIA, right? That that they won't when they do their their sweep of all the different communications that they're trying to get access to. It is likely that they will not. Uh, well, not likely, but it's possible they will not get the story that you want them to get because you've used a different name. It just it just strikes me as that's a much more. And by the way, that she used an alias specifically in convert in communications regarding that tarmac meeting. Are we to think that's a coincidence, right? Are, are we coincidence theorists now? Oh yeah, you know, sure. You know, it's just like. She just it was that was the thing that she decided to use the email alias for because you know why not? No, I don't think that that's I don't think that that really passes the smell test. I think there's clearly something, clearly something shady was going on here. Now it's it's not illegal, but that then raises the other question: Why aren't we invest? Why aren't we getting investigation of this? You know, private citizens for all sorts of federal crimes are, you know, you're subject to investigation and prosecution for for most federal crimes, I think it's at least 10 years. And for some, it's like 20 or 25. But for most of them, it's at least 10 years. I mean, for your basic run-of-the-mill federal crime, it's 10 years. And so why is it that because this happened on the previous administration, all of it is untouchable? You know, I, I understand that this would open up some pretty deep political wounds in the country. But how much more wounder are we really going to get than we already are when it comes to politics? I mean, the Democrat Party right now is running on a, they're not all, all open about it, but a lot of them are. Uh, they are running on a destroy this president platform. Not a, hey, put us in charge, we'll do a better job platform. Or just Just destroy Trump and we'll figure out the rest later. I mean, you got Maxine Waters out there saying that the leakers, you know, she she is all about the leak. She thinks the leakers are great. So. If the people around you are leaking in the way that they're doing, they're trying to tell us something. Of course, we don't want classified information leaked out, and I don't think they would do that with a credible president. They're doing that to this president because he has defined himself as someone who cannot be trusted, someone who's going to get this country in trouble. And so I welcome the leaks. I welcome the information that keeps us focused on him and talking about what's wrong with him. You want to talk about the ends justifying the means. Notice how here's a member of Congress who says, you know, we don't want classified information out there. But, I mean, I really hate Trump, so classified information that hurts Trump, that's fine. I mean, and she does it without even missing, without missing a beat. I mean, she goes right to it. You know, it just switches from one to the other. Yeah, classified information. we got to keep that secret. Except if it hurts Trump, then it's cool. That's really their attitude about everything. And uh, I, I think that it, since that is the attitude, we shouldn't worry about what it will look like. We should investigate uh, more about what happened with Loretta Lynch, Hillary, Bill. Was there any collusion there? I think we should. We should check it out. I think the Department of Justice should. It is the policy of this administration to dismantle, decimate, and eradicate MS-13 that are threatening so violently our people. We will find you. We will arrest you. We will jail you. And we will deport you. 
President Trump has made dealing with MS-13 an important agenda item, but what do we know about this group? We're joined now by Eric Olson to answer that question. He's deputy director of the Latin America program at the Wilson Center. His research and writing has focused on organized crime, and he is frequently quoted as an MS-13 expert. Uh, Eric, great to have you on. Hey, glad to be with you, Buck. All right, just give us some background. I mean, if someone has just heard of MS-13, knows nothing about them other than they're a really bad Latin American gang, where do they come from? Tell us the backstory. Well, MS, for to begin with, is, stands for Mara Salvatrucha, which is a, a, a slang word for Salvadoran. So that tells you right there that its origins are in the Salvadoran uh, community. Uh, mostly their origins are in the exile community, people who were fleeing civil war in, in El Salvador during the 1980s. Many of them ended up in Los Angeles and even in the neighborhoods of the Ramparts and others in East L.A. And those Salvadoran families and, and people uh, had young kids who uh, really faced a lot of crime and violence from other gangs, uh, other Latino gangs, other Mexican gangs, other African-American gangs. And so to defend themselves, little by little, they ended up forming a variety of gangs, not just MS-13, but I guess MS-13 has become the most notorious. So that's point number one. It's in Salvadoran. Its origins are in L.A., uh, by and large, and then how did they get back to El Salvador? And that's the other part of the story that that the U.S. in a crackdown on on, on undocumented migrants and and obviously gang members who were committing violence began deporting them, uh, you know, quite uh, massively in the late 1980s and throughout the 1990s. A lot of these gang members w- were being sent back to El Salvador which might have been their country of origin, but they didn't really have a lot of context or family and other social networks. So, again, to protect themselves, they started to recreate what are called cliques or their small groups of gangs and re-start uh, up the gang activity in El Salvador. And now you're in a situation, a country uh, that was wholly unprepared to receive these uh, gang members back. The U.S. did not do a good job of, of letting the Salvadoran con- uh, authorities know that they were returning, and there really wasn't much of a plan to reintegrate them. So they uh, not only uh, re- reconfigured into their cliques, but also blossomed and grew. And, and since there were not a lot of economic alternatives for them, it became a source of livelihood for many young people uh, in El Salvador. That was in the 1990s, and since then, of course, uh, new generations, new numbers of young people have have incorporated, and it's spread beyond El Salvador into other countries. Now, the 13 in MS-13 is supposed to come from the 13th letter of the alphabet, which is M, so that's the Mara. Uh, but tell me about La, La Hermandad. Well, these are other groups with, uh, of Salvadoran uh, uh, gang members. Hermandad means uh, brotherhood, uh, and these are other gang groups that have formed often in reaction to and to protect uh, themselves from the, uh, the, the violence of, of another gang group. So um, there are several, Calle de Ocho or Barrio de Ocho. Uh, was another one that formed in in, 
in uh, L.A. and has then blossomed and grown throughout Central America. And over time, as governments in Central America have sought to crack down on them, uh, these groups fracture, they separate, uh, and they do form their own um, gangs to try to defend themselves. Conflicts always emerge amongst gangs as well, uh, and so sometimes we see the gangs split up and become uh, uh, competing groups, uh, both for uh, the economic control of their neighborhoods, but also uh, to protect themselves. We're speaking to Eric Olson. He's deputy director of the Latin American program at the uh, Wilson Center. He's an MS-13 expert. Uh, how does MS-13, first of all, where is it? Uh, I've got two questions. I'll throw them both out to you because we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, where are they most active in the United States? And in terms of their reach and uh, the criminal activity they're responsible for, most notably their violence, how do they stack up against the better-known Mexican uh, drug cartels? Well, uh, their, their reach is, of course, back to their origins on the West Coast and California in particular, but they have spread to other cities where that have high uh, numbers of Salvadoran migrants, uh, Houston and parts of Texas, and now on the East Coast as well. Uh, we have MS-13 very active in and around the Washington, D.C. area and Philadelphia, New York, Boston, all the way up into New England. So wherever there's Salvadoran communities of migrants, uh, there, there often is also uh, MS-13 folks there. Um, they have grown enormously. There's an estimated 10,000 of them in the United States, which seems like a big number, but, you know, obviously spread across the United States is not that large. They're very violent. Um, and they're, they are a rival to other gangs, uh, like the Mexican gangs and, and the African-American gangs in certain cities. They, they still aren't as big and as, uh, you know, consolidated organizationally as some of these other historic gangs. But they are important, and they seem more than anything been willing to carry out extraordinarily violent uh, revenge killings. And I think that's one of the reasons why they've gotten the attention of the Trump administration. What Do we have a sense of, of how many... Uh, and we're speaking about MS-13 with Eric Olson of the Wilson Center. Uh, Eric, how many homicides are they... Uh, are they responsible for it? Are we able to gauge that? I mean, what's the scope and scale of this problem? The president has made them a priority for law enforcement efforts. Well, you know, it's not so much the numbers, because in sheer volume, it's not uh, so much uh, larger than than uh, carried out by other gangs. But it's been more the visibility and the sort of uh, brutality of it, the killing of of young people. There was a young woman uh, in, in the D.C. area who was raped and murdered and by MS-13. And, it, you know, it was the shock factor more than anything. And that's something we have to keep in mind, that, that they seem willing to carry out really gruesome attacks. Um, they're not, you know, more uh, violent, committing more murders and other um, gangs, but they have been willing to carry out these, you know, brutal killings. Are, are there any particular, um, are there any particular uh, practices or uh, sort of, you know, intra-gang cultural behaviors that they engage in that are noteworthy? I mean, you know, some gangs wear certain colors. Some gangs have certain initiations. Does MS-13 have any particular lore around it? 
Well, you know, they they were well known for for their tattoos and their variations on MS and 13 in their tattoos and and historically they even their full body tattoos. But as there have been crackdowns on the MS-13 in Central America, and particularly in El Salvador and Honduras, uh, it's been evident that they have stopped or are using less of those kinds of visible signs of of gang membership and have become much more uh, uh, kind of out of visible sight uh, actors. So that actually makes it much more difficult to identify them and, and take them on. They, they're they blending in more fully with the general population. Now, one of the things they're known for in Salvador and Honduras is what we call territorial control. They seek to control a particular neighborhood, a particular street, and uh, extort all economic activity in there. And they... Um, uh, so it's a classic so, organized organized crime technique. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Er, er, Eric, uh, we actually have to leave it there okay. with you for this time, but thank you very much. Eric Olson of the Wilson Center. He's Deputy Director of Latin America. We're talking MS-13. Thanks for joining, Eric. You're very welcome. The Sanctuary City Showdown is upon us. It has been months in the making, and now finally we are starting to see some uh, local government and uh, law enforcement officials who have decided that, sure enough, they are going to take this to court. Now, let's just take a step back for a moment and look at what's really going on here. So you got a bunch of cities. Uh, The number is like uh, roughly 300 have some, and that includes towns and localities and, you know, quaint villages, you know, whatever. Places across the country that have... Uh, some form of sanctuary city policy. Now, that's not it's not an official thing, right? This is just a a a decision that local law enforcement, local government has made to in some way not do what the federal government is requesting uh, under the Trump administration and certainly in, in the case of uh, notification of illegal aliens in custody it's a matter of congressional statute, right? There's a law that exists about this. So it's not just to like, hey, could you maybe sort of kind of, uh, you know, do what I want you to here. There's also some law. But you got all these sanctuary cities. Uh, and we've been talking this, I know, on the show. I'm just putting a little bit of context into this, and then we'll get into what happened today. And, oh, you got Rahm Emanuel and all kinds of stuff going on here right now. So these local jurisdictions have decided the sanctuary cities we'll just refer to them as that right these sanctuary cities won't either hold somebody for a period of time while holding a legal alien for a period of time while uh, federal law enforcement immigration and customs enforcement can come and get him in the most extreme cases they won't even do what is required under a congressionally passed federal statute which is to notify the authorities of the presence of an illegal alien who is in their custody. Um, and that's the, that, that's the most extreme version of this. And then you also have now a new request from the federal government, which is, look, just give us 48 hours notice before you release this person. Now, what does that mean for somebody who is in custody, who's only going to be in custody for uh, 24 hours? How can you give 48 hours notice? So, you know, th- there's some logistical issues, some back and forth that are certainly going to come into play here. But for right now, here's the here's the state of play. 
Rahm Emanuel, former chief of staff for President Obama. You will recall Rahm Emanuel had quite the potty mouth in his day and was verbally abusive to staff, but you, you didn't hear much about it. The media was very uh, uninterested in covering Rahm Emanuel's uh, personal style, shall we say, in that White House. Uh, but you got Rahm Emanuel, who's now the mayor of Chicago. Chicago uh, has a homicide rate that is completely uh, out of control in comparison to other cities. Uh, Chicago is way more homicides uh, per capita than New York. And New York is a city of 8 million. Chicago is like uh, 2 or 3, 2 plus million. Uh, and Chicago is uh, uh, it's got, it's just got way too much violence. There's way too many people getting shot there. And so you'd think that there would be some willingness to try new law enforcement approaches to try and come up with some way to deal with this uh, homicide rate, right? Um, to, you know, in some way work more closely with law enforcement. Uh, federal law enforcement, maybe even in order to drop them. Now, do illegal alien are illegal aliens committing a lot of the homicides in Chicago? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I would guess that actually it, it's not a a particularly high proportion, but I'm not sure. I don't know. But we do know that Chicago needs all the help it can get on its law enforcement side, and it, Chicago also is part of the United States, which means that it should respect federal law enforcement and federal laws. But Rahm Emanuel is saying that he's going to take the uh, Trump administration to court. This DOJ, uh, Jeff Sessions, who's, hey, he's back, by the way. As you know, Jeff Sessions, he is all good now. I, I told you that would happen. I, Trump was not going to get rid of Sessions. But the Obama administration, I'm sorry, the Trump administration has said now they've finally put some action into the words. The words had been, you better be willing to play ball with immigrations and customs enforcement. Now, that doesn't mean you've got local law enforcement combing through neighborhoods trying to find illegal, you know, illegal aliens. That's not what happens at all. It just means if somebody is in custody already, so they, you're already talking about a very small subset of the overall population, somebody who's already in custody who is an illegal alien, they have to let immigrations and customs enforcement know. And then if ICE says, yeah, we want to deport that person, uh, they'd like them to hold the person until ICE can come and get them. That's all we're talking about here. No, there's no one who is advocating. There's no law. There's nothing that says that local police officers are going to have to be acting as immigration cops. It just means that they will be helpful to federal law enforcement authorities who have an, a, a, a lawful immigration enforcement mission. But Chicago, because it's a blue, blue, blue Democrat stronghold, of course, does not want to help, does not want to play ball on this issue, and is entirely uh, unwilling from what we've seen so far to change its its posture at all, change its procedure. So it's going to go to court because the Trump administration has said, look, if you don't do the, those things we want you to do, we're going to withhold uh, some federal law enforcement grant money. That you use to get, you know, fancy new cruisers or um, whatever it may be, additional communications equipment. And it's a few million dollars. Now, the overall budget of I don't know what it is for the Chicago PD, but I know the NYPD budget is is enormous. It's a whole lot more than a few million dollars. A few million dollars even for the Chicago Police Department's budget is pretty small. So it's really not about the money, although if this pro if this 
uh, request, really more like demand from the administration for different sanctuary jurisdictions who are applying or they're applying for this grant. Uh, if this demand were to be extended across the country, it would be a pretty substantial chunk of change that the federal government would not be giving for law enforcement efforts in these areas. And I do understand that the argument here is so you're going to punish lawlessness with less law enforcement funds. That may not be the most effective uh, most effective approach, but you know the federal government has to have some sticks and some carrots here, has to try to do something. And so Rahm Emanuel, mayor of Chicago, is fighting back and saying that this is uh, unconstitutional, or you know, it's unconstitutional, it's a violation of Chicago's you know Tenth Amendment rights, or wh- whatever it may be. Also, I think there'll be some argument that because they were approved for this under the Obama administration, it's not within the DOJ's authority to pull back federal funds that were already marked for Chicago. You know, it could go any number of different directions as a legal argument, but as a political argument, here's where it stands. Democrat urban strongholds, New York, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, and more, uh, are now completely unwilling to change at all when it comes to immigration uh, because they have such substantial populations of immigrants who view this as a knock on them, even though even if they're legal immigrants, right? And so it's a very heated issue politically. Um, but that's not to say that there won't be some places where we'll get change. In fact, I see just now breaking today, uh, you have the Miami Herald reporting that Miami-Dade County complied with uh, Trump to change its sanctuary status. For the first time since it began extending the detentions of local inmates sought for deportation, Miami-Dade County received word from Washington that it won't be treated as a community giving sanctuary to immigration violators. An August 4th letter to Mayor Carlos Jimenez uh, from the Justice Department said there was no evidence Miami-Dade was out of compliance with an immigration provision of a federal police grant worth about $480,000 this year to the county. So, you know, Miami-Dade has already shifted policy a little bit. I mean, this is, you know, it's not that much money we're talking about for these places, but it also then puts pressure on that police chief and that mayor, that city council, whichever one we're talking about here. Well, why are you so willing to violate the law here? Why are you so willing to be so um, complicit in all this? So anyway, team. They're calling it an anti-diversity screed. It is a 10-page memo. If you're a Jerry Maguire fan, perhaps you'd say it's a mission statement. But it's a 10-page memo from an engineer inside of Google that has completely freaked out the Silicon Valley progressive set. For those of you who don't know, which maybe a few of you because you got other things to focus your time on, Google, Facebook, these internet mega companies are absolutely full at the leadership level of far left progressives. I mean, they I think you could make a case that the leadership of some of these Internet companies uh, or these major Internet companies is, in fact, more left wing overall than the media is, which I, I know you're probably thinking, Buck, that's that's crazy. That's not even possible. Oh, no, my friends, I'm telling you. Because they're also evangelists, and their power is increasing. The traditional old-school mainstream media is losing power all the time. And that's part of, I think, their desperation and part of their 
animosity towards Trump. That's one of the reasons they hate Trump so much, because Trump is hastening along. He is speeding up the decline. And that's with a whole bunch of other reasons why they really don't like him. But the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Googles of the world um, and Amazon, of course, are becoming much more powerful with each passing year. And they're really now going to be in a position to buy up, as we've seen with Amazon and The Washington Post and, and who knows what other major Internet companies are going to be picking up media properties and owning them. So their reach and their ability to propagandize and be powerful players in the uh, ideological wars to come in this country, or ideological battles, we could say, uh, that's only, it's only going to get stronger. And so when you see some of these, and, and we should also note that they're, they're pretty vicious sometimes out in Silicon Valley. That's where you had the former CEO of Mozilla ousted from his job, fired from his job, humiliated, run out of town because years before he had supported a measure in California. He had given measure to uh, given money to a measure in California that would have maintained traditional marriage in that state. For that political act, it was he was considered beyond the pale and they were willing to fire him after the fact for that. So they're also willing to make examples of people. They're willing to destroy careers and reputations and even lives because the Silicon Valley set is so full of itself, so wealthy and influential and detached from the average American's reality that their incredibly far left ideas and their incredibly progressive outlook on everything in life has really a, 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 uh, a hardline evangelist uh, aspect to it, meaning they're not, not that not evangelists in the Christian sense, but they're evangelizing. They are trying to uh, convert people to far-left progressivism. So it's in that context that you get this memo out at Google, and it's about the diversity obsession. Now, here's the shortened version. There are uh, not that many female tech engineers. Being a technology engineer, being able to code and do back-end work at a high level uh, for these very advanced web companies is incredibly difficult, very skilled labor, right? These are people with a real skill set. They have to be really bright and really talented to excel in these areas. They're fiercely competitive, by the way. And if you're good at coding, I mean, I know this because I have a brother who works in the tech sector. If you're good at coding, you can command a fantastic salary. And if you're good enough that a place like Google is going to put you in a senior engineering position, you're going to be making a lot of money and you can really write your own ticket. But there are not that many women in these roles. There are, they're disproportionately male. And the heads of these major companies, although not all, you have Marissa Mayer at Yahoo, who, from everything that I can see, did a terrible job, but she was female and so people were happy about that. Uh, you don't have a lot of female leadership in the tech community. Now, it's fiercely competitive. There's a tremendous amount of money at stake. It's very long hours. And the people that do succeed, uh, especially in the current environment, right? It's one thing if you were someone who was getting into this game in the 90s or the early 2000s. But if you're getting in more recently, if you're trying to 
create the next big thing, the next big Silicon Valley startup, it, it completely takes over your life. And with that, you have a preponderance, a, a vast majority of the positions, the senior management, management positions and engineering positions are male. Now, because you're talking about progressives who run these companies, though, and, and a progressive ethos at places like Facebook and Google, they reject this. They view it as uh, it must be a problem of the patriarchy. This must be sexism at work. This must in some way be the result of oppression and not choices or even, and this is where things get really tense, everybody, innate differences at the aggregate level, meaning the group level, meaning overall, meaning in general, but differences between men and women. That's what I think is really the most contentious. Sure, there's the lifestyle choice aspects to it, but this memo goes out there and this guy is clearly a very smart, very analytic fellow. And he writes things like, first of all, he writes about Google's biases. And he says that Google doesn't even understand. This is all about Google, which is one of the most powerful and valuable companies in the world. Uh, Google isn't even aware of how left-wing it is because it just... Everyone is left-wing there. They just assume that people must be left-wing. So here's some of what he writes in this memo. By the way, it's fascinating reading. Of course, you have a lot of social justice warriors online who are trashing it and saying that it's terrible. Uh, but this guy makes some very interesting points. And while they are politically incorrect, he makes some arguments that would we would do well to think about at least. And I think in some cases he's, he's correct. Uh, so here's what he writes. A political orientation is actually a result of deep moral preferences and thus biases, considering that the overwhelming majority of the social sciences, media and Google lean left. We should critically examine these prejudices. And he lists them. He's, uh, he lists left wing and right wing biases. On the left, he writes compassion for the weak. Disparities are due to injustice. Humans are inherently cooperative. Change is good, open and idealist. These are what he views as left-wing biases, and then he lists some on the right. Um, you know, change is dangerous, they're pragmatic, respect for authority, things like that. Okay, but what he gets into is, well, this is from the piece, quote, possible non-biased causes of the gender gap in tech. Because this is a big issue now in Silicon Valley. They're saying that men in technology companies make more than women for similar roles. This, is, this has become... Uh, the center. This has become ground zero of the wage gap fight, right? Because these are the companies that are determining a lot of what the future will look like. These are some of those valuable companies in the world, and they're paying men more than they pay women. But here's where this guy says some stuff, and you're going to be like, oh, wow. Here's where things get a little spicy. Here's where it gets interesting. Uh, in this memo, again, this is a memo circulating around Google, one of the most powerful, wealthy companies on the planet, where the guy's basically like, our diversity obsession is based in a lot of prejudice and nonsense, and we need to actually look at what's really happening and not just fall into these uh, left-wing tautologies and these uh, left-wing knee-jerk reactionary positions. So he writes the following, quote, On average, men and women biologically differ in many ways. These differences aren't just socially constructed because they're universal across human cultures, they often have clear biological causes and links to prenatal testosterone, 
Biological males that were uh, castrated at birth and raised as females often still identify and act like males. The underlying traits are highly heritable. They're exactly what we would predict from an evolutionary psychology perspective. Oh, man, this guy's going science on people here. He's he's pulling out science and biology to explain differences in men and women in technology and hiring and pay and particularly in the engineering and leadership side of Silicon Valley. Ooh, this is a hot button topic. And he gets there's more. And I want to tell you about more of it because this has just set people alight. I mean, people are so furious over this. Brilliant stuff. He gets into more of the gender difference, uh, talking about this viral memo at Google, taking on the diversity obsession that Google has and many other Silicon Valley companies have. And this is emblematic of the very peak, my friends, of left-wing ideology in this country. Uh, The most powerful people in the Democratic Party in many ways right now are the left-wing ideologues who run these massive tech conglomerates that are just going to be getting more and more powerful. They have so much cash on their balance sheets. They're able to do things like Jeff Bezos of Amazon, just buy the Washington Post, right? I mean, this is, and and there's going to be a lot more of that. Uh, They're are people that are rumoring that some of these companies could in the future, uh, they, they may decide to buy up some of the massive established media companies and just use them for content, but control the distribution. So they're very, very powerful. And their messaging is, is essential to uh, their continued growth, right? So they also understand how to get out propaganda and ideas. And they're very progressive. They're very left-wing. And the diversity obsession at a place like Google has finally run into the buzzsaw of somebody who is willing to look at things from the perspective of what's real and what's not, instead of what would I like to be the case? What would make me feel better? What would make me sound like a really good guy? So we we haven't, as far as I know, yet identified who this person is. But when it comes to the differences between male and female representation, in engineering at tech companies, what he's saying is, look, men and women are different. And there are innate biological differences that can play out in the workplace, which, I mean, that is just heresy. By the way, the former president of Harvard, who was also the former Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers, was more or less uh, fired ignominiously, I mean, fired in shame from Harvard because he had a, I'm not sure, I think he had to resign, I can't remember now, but anyway, he was, he was shamed for sure because he asked or he raised the possibility when people were talking about why there aren't more uh, women excelling in math and science, he raised the possibility that maybe men and women are just different and maybe that they have different strengths and that's a biological trait that is not true in every case. That's See, this is where you always run into the, the annoying response from people of, oh, are you saying there's not women who are brilliant at math? And they'll point it to some person. No, you're talking about in the aggregate, meaning you're talking about in general group, uh, group traits, right? So that's not going to be applicable in every case. There are female math geniuses. There are male math geniuses. But out of a population of a million Males and a population of a million females, if you have a thousand male math geniuses and a hundred female math geniuses, and that's true across populations and across cultures, 
that would seem to indicate something, right? There's something going—and I just made up those numbers. I know I'm not saying that's—see, even me here, I'm not, I'm not saying that's the case. I get all scared. Oh, I don't want the ladies to get mad at me. But he's trying to talk about this in an honest way. Then he gets into—so that's on a biological level. Then this guy who wrote this memo that just is a both-barrels-all-in— uh, assault on the diversity cult. It's really a diversity cult at these uh, at these institutions of you know technological uh, well the, at these major tech companies, these global tech companies that have have become a little full of themselves, unfortunately, because they are so influential and so rich and so powerful, uh, and they really think they can change the world. And in some ways, I guess maybe they're right. But anyway, um, he goes into this anonymous guy who I'm sure will be, if he has not already by the time I go on air, been identified. He will be soon. And my guess is that he will be uh, forced to resign or be fired. But he writes in this viral memo, the anti-diversity screed, as, as I've seen it called on. There's nothing screed-like about it. It's just He's just going point by point through this, that women and men have, on average, he even writes that, on average, personality differences and that they have different approaches and that this may result in differences in the workplace, particularly in a very high pressure and incredibly competitive environment like top engineering jobs at these Internet companies and leadership roles at these Internet companies. Remember, I mean, if you're the CEO of Google, you're making a lot of cash. You are doing very well. Um, and so that also then goes into what he writes about with regard to men's higher drive for status. Uh, he writes, we always ask why we don't see women in top leadership positions, but we never ask why we see so many men in these jobs. These positions often require long, stressful hours that may not be worth it if you want a balanced and fulfilling life. Status is the primary metric that men are judged on pushing many men into these higher-paying, less-satisfying jobs for the status that they entail. Note the same forces that lead men into high-pay, high-stress jobs in tech and leadership cause men to take undesirable and dangerous jobs like coal mining, garbage collection, and firefighting and suffer 93% of work-related deaths. I, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, this guy is... I mean, this is like mansplaining on steroids. I mean, this guy is really going for it, and it's it's a really fascinating read, and we'll have it up uh, we'll have it up for you on bucksexton.com if you want to read it for yourself. And I, by the way, I recommend you do if you get a chance. But just even making this case, just even asking the questions or making the argument is treated like heresy. I mean, this guy is... I mean, the, the the hunt to find out who he is has been on from the very from the get go here, and they really want to make an example out of him. So he also um, gets a little further into, you know, he, he says one, he, he gives ideas that are solutions. He's not just saying that Google is a bunch of left wing, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi voting, Bernie Sanders loving, tofu eating. Latte drinking, you know, fancy pants, uh, tech Silicon Valley people, although there's some of that for sure. He's giving some ideas as to how to make things better. He writes, one, demoralize diversity and two, stop alienating conservatives and three, confront Google's biases, stop restricting programs and classes to certain genders or races and having open have an open and honest discussion 
about the costs and benefits of our diversity programs. You see, that's what they really don't want to get to. They're so invested in this. And keep in mind, it's not just the people who like the idea of the program. There are individuals at these companies who have uh, benefited very directly from these diversity programs and to abandon them because they're either ineffective or even more to the point, unfair and not right. And this will tie into the affirmative action discussion we'll be having in a second here would be, in a sense, to undermine the very achievements uh, of the people that have gotten accelerated or hired or, you know, faster promotion because of these various programs, right? So there's a very deep-seated interest that some people have in the propagation of these programs. They really don't want to give this up. They really believe very strongly in it. And it's just fascinating to read this guy because you, you can see the same argument made in a whole bunch of different fields. It's true on Wall Street. I mean, high-wage, high-risk, high-competition positions that are dominated by men we're always told it's because there's this old boys club and all this other stuff. But if it was really the case that it was just a male-female hiring bias or a bias against hiring men, when in reality, because of diversity programs, there's a bias in favor of hiring women. But if it was all this old boys club stuff, if you wanted a huge edge over your competitors, you would just hire women because economically you'd be saving 15 to 20 percent on average. And labor costs are an enormous part of the hurdle to beating your competitors. So capitalism would dictate that a bias based in nothing is stupid, counterproductive, and would cost you to lose business. But maybe something else is at work. I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. Maybe there are other things, right? We can at least talk about it. We can at least talk about the possibility. The funny thing about creating endless classes of victims and allowing that to be uh, just a, a widespread practice on campuses is that when there are more and more victims all the time, you also are going to face more and more demands. You see, victims believe that they have been wronged, right? This is the very basics of being a victim. Victims believe that they are owed something. And in the context of college campuses, that has led to a series of uh, upping demands at schools across the country uh, where it just seems like there's no end to it. Uh, there are students who are gathering together now, and as part of whatever their particular you know, group may be, whatever their uh, affinity group or identity group or ethnic group or however it is that they are claiming victim status, uh, they're making demands of the administration now. And the administrations have really liked the feeling of moral superiority and the cheap sanctimony of, you know, diversity is our strength and multiculturalism is the fabric that holds the country together and all this stuff that they say. And on campuses, it's been really uh, the, the dominant dogma for a long time, but it's gotten worse recently, right? It, it's actually become a bigger problem. And when I look now at what's going on, on these campuses, and I was reading this piece actually in the New York Times, you can see that now, I mean, in a sense, the, the inmates are running the asylum. Uh, this happened at Mizzou, where you had uh, students who were demanding you know, that they had more, um, I don't know, racial sensitivity that was going to be shown by the administration. There were a bunch of incidents. I mean, all I can tell you is that they were having protests where they were not allowing people 
to film them or or even you know engage with the protesters for fear that some of them would look dumb. And you have that one professor who was saying, you know, can I get some help? Can I get some muscle over here? I need some muscle. This guy's filming. You know, she was apparently a relative of Hillary Clinton's. Oh, I don't like to do this. You know, anyway. So they they've seen this now on campuses and we, we catch these videos of these crazy groups that are out there and they're of all kinds, all different ethnic backgrounds. I mean, you know, everyone's a victim now, right? Everyone's claiming to have some victim status where they are uh, they need redress because it's really easy. I mean, it's it's a really cathartic and um, you can understand why people like this because it explains all your problems right you haven't made any mistakes in fact anything that's going wrong in your life or any place where you feel insecure insufficient it's someone else's fault it's the cause of uh, or it is caused by oppression it is caused by other people who are and this is the basis of intersectionality which is the underlying philosophy on all these different college campuses. And that intersectionality is where you get people that are saying, you know, you're mansplaining or you're, you know, you're part of the patriarchy or, you know, sexism, racism, xenophobia, all this stuff. Uh, But it's spiraling out of control on campuses in a way that administrations, these university administrations, didn't really prepare for. Um, Here's what the New York Times writes about this. Campuses that have prided themselves on increased diversity in admissions are now wrestling with students who want more control over the institutions they attend, including a say in hiring, even of visiting professors, housing, a theme house at the University of California, Santa Cruz, must be painted in pan-African colors, and curriculum. Among nearly 50 demands presented to the University of Chicago, the creation of courses on the Islamic Golden Age sequences on Caribbean and Southeast Asian civilizations, and a required diversity and inclusion course. So these campuses that are full of multiculturalism and the politics of victimology and have been fostering this have just been throwing gasoline on this this conflagration of boo-hoo, wah-wah, it's so hard for me, for all kinds of different groups. Um, that that they the term usually is marginalized, right? That's one of the preferred progressive terms. These are marginalized groups, uh, which is just an, an, a way, another way of saying that they are oppressed. Um, and there's a hierarchy, by the way, within those marginalized groups or b- among the different marginalized groups. But there's they now want to determine what gets taught, who gets hired, who lives where on campus. Uh, in my own experience, I remember at Amherst. There was the nicest house on campus was the a house that was assigned to the Black Student Union. Uh, it was named for uh, a famous black alumni of the college, and they maybe allowed one non-black student to live there as a way of saying, see, it's not only black students allowed to live here, but it really was. And it was the nicest house on campus. And you could only live on campus, really. It was very hard to live off campus at my school. So you had what was effectively a, a segregated, uh, a self-segregated housing situation. Uh, and it wasn't, by the way, it was also a, a Latina or Latino house. I mean, different groups chose to have houses where they would only live with people of their own background and ethnicity. And yes, technically, because it was uncomfortable even for the administration at the time, 
you could apply if you were not of that background. But how many white students do you think really wanted to go through the application process for the black student house? Uh, and look, this is just this is reality. This isn't my school. Uh, I was dealing with this. I saw this. So I'm, I'm not just reading about it. And I'm sure it's only gotten more radical over time. But see, the victimology that has been fostered on these campuses has now turned into a series of escalating demands. Right. These kids who have been uh, coddled and, and many of them, by the way, have a deep insecurity because they've been brought to and particularly in the case of more elite schools. They've been brought in with uh, less academic credentials, less well-prepared. Uh, and by the way, this was so pronounced at my school, again, at Amherst, so I'd like to speak with some, uh, some background here or some personal connection to this. You know that I'm not just reading this stuff and spouting off. There was a crash course in basic math and basic reading that Amherst College put some of its diversity candidates through. And I remember because I arrived at campus early for a couple of years because it was a nice time to be there and I was hanging out. And I remember these students who were fresh. It was only for freshmen. They would show up. And for six weeks, they were more or less doing, you know, rudimentary high school English and, and arithmetic. And I got to say, I mean, this is a school that turns down 80 percent of the people who apply. OK, this is a place that in those U.S. News and World Report listings pardon the uh, little plug for my school here, but is usually number one, two, or three in, in terms of colleges, not universities, but in terms of actual colleges in the country. You're bringing in people that are beating out 80% of the competition who need special uh, rudimentary academic assistance? Someone explained that to me, right? How can that make any sense? But Again, the, the politicization that's gone on on these campuses and the worshiping at the altar of diversity has just overcome all other uh, all, all other criteria. And it is now the primary uh, it is now the, the primary ideological uh, glue on these campuses. It's what holds all the professors together and it's it's drummed into students heads. And if you don't sign on to this, you're in all kinds of you're in all kinds of trouble. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it's a really interesting situation where a sophomore at I think it was Pomona but you know it's whatever one of those schools out in California a sophomore quoted in the New York Times said uh, each incoming class is getting progressively more radical he recalled the panel discussion during orientation at which a student said oh is this was at Pomona yeah we should burn down Pomona because elite colleges represented white supremacist patriarchy Mr. Gu who I believe is identified as Asian-American in this piece, by the way, Mr. Gu found the idea absurd. Quote, you are going to a $60,000 a year school, and you're either there because your parents are wealthy or the school has given you a full ride, and you are saying it's a dangerous environment for you, he said. There is a strange sense of entitlement, end quote. I'll say entitlement. I mean, that's what's so crazy. You get these kids who are going to Yale and Harvard and Pomona and, you know, just go down the list of these wildly expensive private institutions that are going to be opening doors for them for decades to come. People will, I think wrongly, by the way, in many cases, make assumptions about their academic and intellectual capabilities based on this degree they're getting from this undergraduate institution that honestly many of them didn't earn via academics the way that People believe they did, meaning that for many students at these schools, 
big percentages, 30, 40, 50 percent. And yeah, I know people say, what about uh, what about legacies, which is when your parents go there and the school gives you preference? You know, I actually know about this. The admits for legacies at schools are usually within the margin of acceptable grade range or, or overall it's 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 within the sort of mid-range of the grades it is useful it is helpful i'm not saying it isn't but with diversity uh candidates you'll get people that aren't even in aren't even really in the in the running in terms of their sats and their grades and they'll get in so I mean, you have real outliers with diversity candidates you can have that with legacies you can have people write a five million dollar check to get into harvard we've all read the stories i know that but overall the biggest swings come from either people who are recruited athletes, which is obviously people of all different kinds of backgrounds, and uh, diversity candidates. That's where you see the biggest shifting of the, st- of the standards that the rest of the student body is, is held to. But anyway, back to this, this sophomore at Pomona saying that these kids are at, a, at an incredibly elite place, and they're, and they're either so privileged that their parents can pay for it or— they're so lucky and living at, at the, the or studying rather at the generosity of other people who are paying for their education. And they say it is a, quote, dangerous environment. I mean, these kids are delusional. They are delusional. They have lost it because these administrations coddle them and coddle them because the administrators at these colleges and universities don't want to have to ever have a tough conversation. They want their peers, their fellow colleagues in the faculty lounge and at the, you know, the off-campus cocktail parties and the president's residence and all the stuff that goes on. They want them to think well of them. And, you know, college presidents make a lot of money, right? Tenured professors have a great lifestyle. I mean, there's a real business aspect to all of this, too. I mean, I knew tenured professors at Amherst who were teaching like three hours a week and making $120,000 a year starting. You're teaching three hours a week, everybody, and writing articles for some, you know, academic journals that nobody ever reads. It's a great gig, by the way. As a white male now, I have I can't even tell you how many people I've spoken to from top Ph.D. programs in particularly in the humanities who are like, "I, I can't get a job teaching anywhere. And, and everywhere they go, they say, well, you're a white male. Sorry, because the, the, there's a huge push, as you see, from these students who are demanding more diversity in hiring, too. It's not even just the diversity of the student body. Now you've also got more diversity required in the faculty. And this is supposed to be about the most uh, well-rounded and highest level educational experience possible for these young people it's really not supposed to be a big experiment in social engineering but that's increasingly what it's turned into but these campuses are just full of brats they are brats and if you doubt that that's the proper term go back and watch the way Yale students who confronted Professor Christakis uh, in a quadrangle at Yale University in New Haven Connecticut screaming at him cursing at him I mean I'll say one thing for my scholarship Jesuit high school where everybody in my high school is a private school, but every single student there was on a hundred thousand dollar four year full ride scholarship. It was a great place. It's called Regis high school. And I will say this, at least they never would have stood for that crap. I mean, if you had ever spoken to a teacher, the way that these Yale kids in this video, you would have been out. I mean, you would have been out that day. They, they would have just shoved you out the door and, you know, sent your, sent your book bag, uh, you know, UPSD or something. I mean, you would have been toast. 
And yet on these campuses, these kids get away with this. And, and it also, by the way, uh, creates real divisions among the students, too. You know, at Pitzer College, they had a free speech wall against cultural appropriation. And people were writing all over this wall, white girl, take off your hoops, saying that white females can't wear hoop earrings because it is a cultural appropriation. Now, I, I don't know where they think, I mean, you know, hoop earrings, you could go back in the Aztecs and the Incas. I mean, you know, hoop earrings have been around a long time in a lot of places. But think of the gall. I mean, the it, it's just m- mind boggling that these students would tell fellow students that they can't wear the earrings they want to wear because it's cultural appropriation. That these professors who are supposed to be all about tolerance and all this other stuff don't step in and say, you know, this is just crazy. Is is it's be look, it's beyond the pill. It really is. And and it's it's an embarrassment for these schools. It is an embarrassment. And they don't know how to turn it off. I mean, they have created monsters with this uh, diversity at all costs, multi- worshiping of multiculturalism, worshiping of intersectionality, all this progressive claptrap. They don't know how to get back to a more normal place now. And by the way, all these you're like, Buck, why should we care about all this stuff? All these students, they're going to be voting soon. Well, some of them are voting already. They're going to be voting soon. They're going to be out there in corporate America. They're going to be running for office. They're going to be in media. They're going to certainly be in newsrooms. And a lot of them will be teaching in academia. And they're going to be passing on these ideologies that are really just, I mean, this ideology rather that's just uh, an excuse for petty totalitarianism. You know, they think it's benevolent, but it's not. It's just just nagging and annoying and uh, constantly trying to tell other people what to do. That's just what's going on on these campuses. And I, I managed to uh, put together some furniture because I just moved. And now I, I used to live kind of in a in a more hip area of, of Manhattan. And, and now I live just like right in the heart of all the all the commercial madness and the loudness and everything. But I like it. I, I just didn't want to spend time commuting to work. And you know, we're going to have our the Freedom Hut is going to be uh, moving. Uh, the actual location we do the show is going to be moving in a, in a matter of weeks. So I wanted to be close to close to the office. And anyway, I, moving is always an incredibly stressful experience. I'm always I, I think I remember reading that after a severe illness and a divorce, moving is like the third most stressful life experience most people go through. <laughs> I tell you, I totally believe it. I'm still kind of traumatized from just dealing with all the stuff and, you know, my back hurts and, you know, my back hurts. It does, though. It really does. It was a lot of stuff. Um, but I, I did get to go through my old books, and I made a new stack to read, which is exciting. Uh, so, team, please do check out BuckSexon.com. Also, um, I would ask you to rate the podcast. Even if you're not a podcast listener, rate the show, which is what the podcast is. Just go to BuckSexon with America Now on iTunes and just give me a star rating. Uh, all the stars you can, please. And uh, also subscribe if you have not already. Share it with a friend. A lot to talk to you about this coming week. Until tomorrow, my friends, shields high.